student and I'm a missionary. I'm a general contractor and I'm a missionary. I'm a barista and I'm a missionary. I'm a designer and I'm a missionary. I'm a teacher and I am a missionary. I'm a musician and I'm a missionary. I'm a mom and I'm a missionary. I'm a tattoo artist and I'm a missionary. I'm a production director and I'm a missionary. I'm a firefighter and I'm a missionary. evening. The uh, church that I pastor in Raleigh-Durham does not have Sunday evening services, uh, but I remember them as a kid. They seemed to always be the ones when I went to church as a kid that I would get drowsy in for whatever reason, and I would kind of doze off a little bit. So uh, let me tell you what we teach our church in Raleigh. Um, it, that is that drowsiness whenever the Word of God is being taught is a sign of demon possession, okay? <laughs> So if the person next to you looks like they're getting a little drowsy, you have my full permission to reach over, grab their forehead with your hand, and just yell, demons out, as loud as you can. And I promise you, whatever your theology, the spirit of slumber will depart from that person, all right? Um, I have to tell you guys, I, listen, I love your church. Um, I am so grateful for um, just this day that I've been able to spend, and of course, to catch up with um, Pastor Vance and, uh, and, and his family, uh, but I just feel such a kindred spirit um, with you all. I told you this morning, or those of you that were here this morning, that God has given us a vision to plant a thousand churches in our generation, um, to hear about the, uh, the vision that you guys have and to meet the couple of planners like the ones you had up there a minute ago. I, just, I feel like telling Vance, you know, you guys are West Coast, we're East Coast, um, we'll meet in the middle. Uh, we'll just cover the whole place, somewhere around Kansas, I guess. And, uh, we'll know the job's done at that point, but uh, we love you guys. Thank you for, um, for, for just your faithfulness. Um, I'm so, um, so moved uh, just by, um, by that and by your, your vision. Um, my best friend, uh, one of my best friends, I, I served as a church planner in uh, Southeast Asia for a couple of years. Uh, Pastor Vance mentioned that this morning. Uh, one of my best friends there was a guy uh, by the name of Ishmael. Um, Ishmael, um, for lack of better terms, was like an Islamic um, student pastor. Uh, he was very faithful, very devoted to his religion, um, but he taught me when I got there um, really how to survive uh, in Southeast Asia. When I got to um, Indonesia, which is where I served, I, I could not speak any of the language. Uh, in fact, all I could say was, hello, my name is JD, where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. Um, that was the extent of my, of my knowledge of their language. So he taught me everything. Um, I tried to share the gospel with him dozens of times. Um, every single time I shared the gospel with him, it always ended like this. Um, he would reach out, he'd get a big smile on his face, and he'd put his hand on my shoulder. He'd say, J.D., my brother, um, you are a great man of faith. Um, you are devoted to your God and to Jesus Christ. He said, but you are a Christian because you were born a Christian, and I am a Muslim because I am born a Muslim. You will always be a Christian. I will always be a Muslim. That is how it has been and how it will always be. Uh, I tried uh, dozens of times to break through that barrier and never got through it. Um, the week before I left to come home back to the United States, I... Um, I, he came over and I said, hey man, I thought it was going to be the last time I saw him, um, but I said, I said, hey, I, one more time, and I sat down and just explained to him, I said, look, if what the Bible says is true, um, there's not multiple ways to God, there's not your way and my way, there's one way, and that way is Jesus Christ, and uh, I, I pleaded with him to listen, and uh, he, at the end, after listening very politely for 15, 20 minutes, he smiled again, he said, JD, my brother, you're a great man of faith. Um, he said, but you will always be a Christian because you were born a Christian, and I will always be a Muslim because I was born a Muslim. And um, he left my house. I thought I'd never see him again. The day that I was 
leaving to come home. The taxi was literally in the driveway getting ready to take me to the airport. Um, he showed up about an hour before I was getting ready to leave, and uh, he, he, I could tell something was on his mind, and he wanted to talk. And so uh, I said, you got something? And he said, yeah. So we went kind of in a back room, and he said, you know that conversation we had a week ago? I said, yeah. He said, I went home that afternoon, he said, and I just you know, kind of forgot about it. Um, he said, but your words uh, that day, I could never get them out of my heart. He said they just kept getting heavier and heavier. He said it was like a kabratan in their language, which just meant a weight. He said, he said, and I, he said so I, I just kept trying to push it out of my mind, but I couldn't forget it. He said that night I went to sleep, um, and he said when I went to sleep, I had this. He said, I, maybe you would call it a dream. He said, but it was, it was not a dream. He said in my, my mimpi is what he called it, my, my vision, he said I was standing on earth here where I, in my house, and he said, all of a sudden, up from between my feet grew up this road. He called it the Jalanurus, which in their language meant the straight and narrow way that goes to heaven. He said, the Jalanurus, it was stretching from my feet up to heaven. And then his eyes got real big, and he said, and you were on it. And I was a little offended. I was like, well, yeah, that's what I've been trying to tell you the whole time. Um, and he said, you were on it. He said, and, and, and you got all the way up there. And as I was watching you go, he said, you got all the way up to heaven's gates. It was these big brass doors. And uh, he said, I thought your journey ended there because no one could get past those gates. He said, when, when suddenly, he goes, when I thought your journey was over, he says, someone inside there knew your name. And they called your name. And he said, and those doors opened up and you went into there. He says, and those doors shut behind you. And he said, my heart was broken because I wanted to go with you. He said, and then he said, those doors opened again. He said, after I thought the dream was over, he said, the doors opened again. He said, and you came back down out of heaven, and you walked all the way back down here to where I was standing on earth, and you reached out, and you grabbed my hand, and you pulled me onto your back, and you carried me all up the way into heaven with you. Then Ishmael looks at me after saying that, and he says, he says at, these are his exact words. He said, at first, I think this was dream that come from eating strange fish. That's exactly what he said. Ikan Asing. He, he said, but I've had many of those kinds of dreams. This was not that kind of dream. This was dream from Allah. And he said, um, can you tell me what my dream means? Now, I'm raised in a very traditional Baptist home. You know, dreams and visions are not part of our standard fare. But I'm like, bro, you are so in luck. Dream interpretation is my spiritual gift. So... <laughs> For the next hour, hour and a half, um, almost missed my flight, I, 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 I opened the gospel to him and walked him through it again. And I would love to tell you that Ishmael became a follower of, of Jesus. He did not, and to my knowledge, to this day, he has not. It's, it was just still too much for him. But at the end of, of, of walking him through this again, he said, I know that this dream was from God. And if anything else, it means that you were sent here by God to teach me the way of salvation, the way of life. He said, but my friend, this afternoon, you were going home. He said, you were going home, and he said, you were the only Christian that I have ever known. Who is going to teach me the way of life now that you are, are gone? Ishmael, um, that was several years ago, because I left Indonesia in 1999. Ishmael, his family, all of them died in the tsunami that hit Southeast Asia in 2004. He survived, because he wrote me after that. I wrote him. I went back to visit. I've been back twice since then looking for him. I have not been able to find him. By God's grace, before I die, um, I hope that I can see him again and finish and fulfill this dream that God put in him. But it has never 
left my mind, and there's probably not a month that goes by at our church when we commission somebody overseas when I don't think about Ishmael and think about the many that are represented by him in the Muslim world who will say, I've never known a single Christian. What I want to do tonight with you is I want to reflect a little bit because I feel a great deal of love for my friend Ishmael. But I want to reflect with you on God's love for sinners. And I just want us to think about the world and our lives through the lens of that love. And to think about what difference it makes for how we see people, how we see the Muslim world, how we see our neighbors when we think through the lens of that love. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to take it out and open it to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, I want to take us into the place where the love of God for sinners was most put on display. Now I'm going to go ahead and tell you, this is one of those places where I feel like all that I can say or do falls short of what is actually happening. I almost feel like I've got to come into this place on my knees. This is such a holy place that you and I are going to enter tonight. You know, the Bible says that the angels, think about this, who see God's face every single day, long to look into the things of the gospel. They long, the angels who see the very face of God, long to be able to think about and to perceive better what you and I are going to look at tonight, but even when they can see it, they can't see it the way we can see it because they see it from an outsider. We see it as something that was done for us. So I want us to pray as we begin tonight because these things that we're going to look at are spiritually discerned. You see, this is one of those messages that if, messages that if the Spirit of God does not open your eyes, then I can stand up here all day long using the most eloquent words that I could summon, and you could listen with the most attentive ears that you could put on, and everything I say would be wasted because unless the Spirit of God opens your heart to see the glory of God, then all the words of one man to another are worth absolutely nothing. So we have to pray that God will, will, will let, you, let you see and let me see. Because the power of these kinds of things is not in the eloquence, it's not in the application or the illustration, the power is in the seeing. So could we pray, could not just you listen to me pray, but will you pray? Will you ask God to let you see this holy thing and to see your life and your world through the lens of God's love? Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray together. God, I do feel the tremendous inadequacy. God, almost the unworthiness, the fear of touching this holy thing. But I need this coal to cleanse my lips that though I am sinful, God, you are a God who does not mark with iniquities because if you did, who could stand? God, there is forgiveness with you that you might be feared. So God, may we see your forgiveness again tonight when we feel it so deeply that we would fear you, and God, that your love, the love of Christ, would compel us. And we would go to others, pleading with them on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 14, verse 32. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And there he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. 
Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, Daddy, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch even one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping because their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And so he came a third time and said to him, them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough because the hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And they lifted their eyes, and there coming in the distance was Judas with a band of Jewish soldiers that had come to arrest Jesus and take him off to his trial and to his death. Now first, we have to admit, listen, that this scene that you and I are looking into is very mysterious. Because frankly, if you'll let me speak very frankly, just give me the benefit of the doubt. Frankly, Jesus does not die in the defiant way that many of the world's other great heroes died. Think like Gladiator. I mean, I know it's made up, but just think about that for a minute. Or Braveheart. Think about men who put their fists in the face of an evil empire and said, you don't scare me. I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. That's how Jewish heroes of Jesus' time were. They would die defying God's enemies, some of them by crucifixion, proclaiming that God would get the victory. They would declare God's victory in the face of the evil empire. When Greek and Roman men died, they were always cool and stoic. That was the value that they put great value on, or that was the characteristic they put value on. Socrates, if you think about his death when he drank hemlock, Plato records that he was calm. His color never changed. He even cracked a few jokes before his death. Defiance. Even many of Jesus' own followers would die in the same way. Polycarp, for example, who was a student of the Apostle John, when they came to take him, he was 86 years old. He went calmly. And when he was asked in front of this large crowd if he would like to say anything before they, they burned him at the stake, he said, he said, you think that I'm afraid of this fire right here? He said, you ought to be afraid of the fire that is going to burn eternally. I'm not scared of these temporary flames. Go on, boys, bring on the fire. And that was how he died. That's how many of the world's great heroes died. But here, here, Jesus appears weak, scared even, does he not? And what's really strange about this is that everywhere else, Jesus shows unflinching courage in the face of danger. Right before this, for example, Jesus' disciples were telling him he was crazy to go to Jerusalem because he was going to be killed. But Jesus is the one, Mark says, who set his face like a flint to go to Jerusalem. And it's not like, by the way, Jesus is withering in the face of pain because the first aspect of torture has yet to begin. So verses 33 and 34, take a look at it. There's a very strange phrase that's kind of the, clue, the, um, the, the key to this whole thing. He began to be astonished and troubled. In Greek, what it literally says is, suddenly, in that moment, he began to be astonished. In other words, Jesus suddenly saw something in verse 33 that was not there in verse 32. And it stunned him. It says he was troubled by it. The word troubled is a very strong Greek word that means overcome with shocking horror. 
one commentator I was looking at said it, it, it would be something like the emotion you would feel if after returning home from a business trip, you saw your family slaughtered and strung up against the wall. The emotion that you felt when you walk into would be the Greek word they used there to, to, to indicate troubled. It was so overwhelming that Jesus, who is not one to exaggerate, said he almost died from it. Do you see that? I mean, that's what he said, verse 34. He said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Luke says he sweat great drops of blood. A medical condition doctors call hematridosis, where you're under such distress that the capillaries in your face burst. One of our pastors said the last summer as he was leaving the pool where their family goes, he has three kids. He said they got out to the car and realized that two of their kids were there and the, the, the youngest one, the three-year-old, was not with them. They go back to the pool to see if he's still in there and what is every parent's greatest fear is there is his son at the bottom of the pool. He jumps in, pulls his son out, begins to do CPR on him, calls 911, manages to revive him. They get in there, they take him to the hospital. After being there for a few hours, the doctor comes out and says, good news is he's going to be okay. He's going to be fine. In fact, we don't think there's any real problem. You got to him in time, but we just like to keep him here overnight just in case there's something else. And so the pastor friend, uh, the guy that's on our staff said, I, you know, of course, relieved. He said, I sat down next to his bed and I looked and saw all these little purple blotches all over my son's face. And I asked the doctor what that was. The doctor said when he was at the bottom of the pool, right before he went unconscious, he was screaming in such panic for you. Evidently, that's the capillaries in his face burst. Here is the son of God who walked on water, who calmed storms, who commanded legions of demons, who was present at creation, who saw Satan fall like lightning, who spoke and dead men come out of the grave. Here is the son of God under such distress that the capillaries in his face are bursting because he's under that kind of strain and he almost dies as a result of it. The word Gethsemane literally means oil press. Because that's what's happening. The stress of being afraid is so great that his blood is already flowing out of him. Notice what he prays, verse 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. He calls God Abba, Daddy, the term of closest intimacy with God. And what is the response? This is so important. Listen to this. What is the response? There is no response. You see, up until this point, he has always enjoyed an intimacy with the Father. He often withdrew in times of persecution to be alone with God to draw strength from his Father. And the Father had always radiated with openness to him, sometimes even affirming him publicly, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. But now, in the hour that Jesus needs his Father most, there is only silence. So he stumbles back to his disciples looking almost for some kind of comfort. And they're asleep. So he wakes them up and he says, guys, I need you to be with me. He needs somebody. I mean, there's something weak, almost tender in this, is there not? Verse 39, he goes back to the father and says the exact same thing. And again, only silence. What's happening? What's happening? I agree with William Lane, the New Testament scholar, who says that the only explanation is that God has already begun to turn his face away. The crucifixion has already started. 
Before the first nail was driven into his body, Jesus' soul had been abandoned by God. You see, Jesus had lived his life for the approval of the Father. And now, in the moment that Jesus needed him most, God, his Father, turned his face away. And he staggered under the weight of it, almost to the point of death. Again, William Lane, this is the horror of one who lived wholly for the Father who came to be with his father for a brief interlude before his death and found hell rather than heaven open before him. Utter and total aloneness. Have you ever felt alone? A friend abandons you? A trusted friend turns on you? Your kids walk away from your faith. Your spouse forsakes you. Jesus felt that. Not just aloneness, but the pain of rejection. You ever been really rejected? I mean, one thing I know is that the closer the relationship, the more, the greater the pain of rejection. I mean, every once in a while, I'll get some random letter from a person I've never met who tells me, and they came to our church, well, I'm the worst person in the world. Those things never bother me. Why? Because they don't know me. I don't know them. They're just somebody that's taking a shot. It's more about them than it is about me. But if it's different when it's a friend or a spouse or a parent, I mean, I think about what it would be like to do this to one of my kids, to have them in the moment when they were the weakest, when they were the most in pain, when they were the most insecure, the most broken, to have them look to me for some kind of affirmation and not just not be there for them, but to turn my back on them and walk away. My children have only known me for a few years, and my love for them has been very imperfect. What's it like to lose the infinite love of the Father that you have known in unbroken fellowship for all of eternity? I do not understand everything that is going on here, but what I do understand is how painful it would be to turn away from one of my own kids and let them die. I understand the torment of that, and I know that somehow that gives me a taste, just a taste, of what God the Son experienced in this moment in Gethsemane. Yet this is what God did for us because he loved us and he wanted to save us, and this was the only way. How do we come up with an analogy for this? And there really is nothing to which we can compare it. Nothing to which we, that can make us really understand. Anything human we come up with really only takes away from the bitterness and tragedy in this moment. Somehow in this moment, Jesus experienced the equivalent of an eternity and a godless, fiery hell for us. And all we can say is not to figure out how to bring up an analogy for it. All we can say is, behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. Hymn writers, sensing the magnitude of this moment, they would say things like this, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine." Or one of the newer worship songs we sing, "'I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross.'" There's probably no any other words we sing in worship that have truer meaning than those words right there. In Gethsemane, Jesus stared into hell because that's what hell is. Hell is complete abandonment by the Father. You see, I always thought that what made the crucifixion so bad were the physical tortures, the horrors that went with it. And they were terrible. But the Roman historian Cicero says that one of the Romans' goals on the cross was utter humiliation. So they chose a public place to crucify, like for us, the mall. So that you walk out of the mall and there's a man that you know stripped naked. It was so painful that men would weep and vomit and urinate all over themselves. Cicero said that sometimes Romans would crucify women to make a point. But whenever they would crucify a woman, 
they would crucify her backwards because they could not stand the look of anguish on a woman's face and the pain that went with something like a cross. In Jesus' case, we know that he was beaten first to a point that he was barely recognizable. When the Passion movie that came out a few years ago, it's certainly just Hollywood's recreation of that, but I think it gives you probably a taste of what Jesus went through. Where he's beaten, Cicero said that, that during these beatings it was not unlikely, not uncommon, where a man would be partially disemboweled by the time that they would be done. They, it wasn't uncommon, he said, to see a, a, the, the whip latch onto a rib and to see a rib go flying off of a man's frame as he was beaten. And he was nailed up on a cross, naked, in a public place in the full light of day. Yes, the physical horrors were terrible. But listen, in Gethsemane, that's not what made Jesus stagger. It was the utter abandonment by God that he faced. That was the horror of the cross for him. That's what almost made him die. In Gethsemane, Jesus looked full into the cup of God's wrath, and it overwhelmed him so badly that it almost killed him. And twice he prays to his father, Daddy, let this cup pass from me. And twice he is met by silence. God had determined to save us, and this was the only way. You see that whole cup imagery, Isaiah 51, 17 is where that comes from. When it says that God will give to his servant to drink of the cup of his wrath. And Jesus had to drink it to the dregs. I think it was Jonathan Edwards who compared it to a dam breaking forth. Uh, being out here um, in this area, I went to see the Hoover Dam for the first time while I was here. And there you stand in front of that massive wall. Imagine that you were standing you know, a couple hundred yards down from it. And as you're looking at this thing and you're down in the middle of the valley, you suddenly see part of it begin to crack and break open. And then you see a little water begin to come through it. And then the entire thing opens up as a wall of water several hundred feet high comes rushing through that valley right at you. You know there's no possible way to escape and death is certain. But then right before, Jonathan Edwards, right before that water comes to sweep you away to your death, the ground in front of you opens up and every single bit of it is swallowed up on the ground underneath your feet so that not a drop of it touches you. Jonathan Edwards says that Jesus took the cup of God's wrath the fullness of it, the dregs, and he drunk it to the dregs. He turned it over on God's altar and says, it is finished and no more of it can be, be given to them at all. It is the fury of Mount St. Helens in a coffee cup is how I've heard it described. Jesus took this in our place because he was doing it to save us. He drank the cup of God's wrath to its very dregs so that we could be plunged into the well of joy. Would you really entertain the idea that there are multiple ways to God? What greater insult could you give to Jesus? Twice the son asked the father if there's any other way. Let it, let it happen. And twice God says no. Jesus was the only one who could save us. And this was the only way. That's what Gethsemane meant for Jesus and our salvation. Here's what it means for our world. I'll give you two things. Number one. We must feel the weight of his love for sinners. We must feel the weight of his love for sinners. In the cross, Paul says, God puts on display the love of God for us. In fact, when you think about it, it was dangerous for God to give Jesus a glimpse of this before he put him on the cross. Can you think with me on this is, again, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards says, wasn't it dangerous? Jonathan Edwards is the old Puritan theologian from like 300 years ago. He says, wasn't it dangerous for God to let Jesus see this in Gethsemane? 
Because then Jesus might have turned his back on it and gone the other way. Why not wait until Jesus had been secured to the cross and then show him this? Here's what he said. It was so Jesus could go to the cross voluntarily, knowing full well what he was about to experience, so that his love for us would be put on display even more. It was so he could show his love for you. God turned his back on his most beloved son because God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe on him would have everlasting life, and this was the only way that could happen. If you or I had been there and we had tried to stop Jesus, he would have said, no, this is your cup. And this is a cup I've got to drink for you, and there's no other way. One of the accounts says that an angel came to minister to him at this moment. I always wondered what the angel, I mean, how do you, how do you minister to Jesus in a point? What, what, what did Jesus, what did he give to Jesus? John Piper book? It's like, hey, read this. <laughs> we don't know. We don't know. It doesn't say, but maybe Hebrews 12, 2 gives us an answer. Because Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Maybe that angel just reminded him of the joy. Because that's what gave him the ability to endure. The joy of what? What was he looking forward to? What was it? Here's another way to ask that. What was it that Jesus would have after the cross that he didn't have before? What would Jesus have on that side of the cross that he didn't have on this side? The approval of God? The, it, was that what he would have? Well, he already had that. The kingship of the universe, already his. What is the one thing that he would have after the cross that he did not have before it? Us. He was doing this to save us. That doesn't mean that we're the center of the universe. God's chief end of the cross is in everything else that God does is his own glory. But the glory that he revealed in the cross is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet a far way off, he lifted up his robe and he ran to us. And he made those who were prostitutes and harlots his sons and his daughters. Isaiah 43 says that he went to the cross because we were precious in his sight. The word precious you think about what, how many things in your life are precious. Precious means you would give up anything for that. If, if, if one of my kids came down with a disease and the doctor said, hey, there is a cure. We think there is a cure, but it's an unproven medicine. And so it's not covered by insurance. And it is hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the only way to get this medicine is you're going to have to sell everything that you have, probably mortgage your entire future to be able to purchase just a little bit of that medicine for that kid. In a second, without even a second thought, I would mortgage everything in my life to be able to give that medicine to my kid because they are precious to me. The God who possessed all the universe gave it all up and was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities because of us. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and, and sorrow meet or joy compose so rich a crown? you got to feel the weight of God's love for sinners. Number two, got to read the Great Commission through the light of this vision. You got to read the Great Commission through the light of this vision. Matthew 28, 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, and I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. The God who says go is the Savior of Gethsemane.
Gethsemane shows you how he feels about sinners. Is there anything too great to ask of him? Is there any request you would ever give that would exhaust the limits of his love? I love what John Newton, in another hymn that we don't sing, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, which we do sing a lot. One of his other hymns is much less well known. Thou art coming to a king, so with thee large petitions bring. For his grace and power are such that none can ever ask too much. Newton tells a story of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, I, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is a story that he told. Alexander the Great is, is, is said that, um, you know, the world conqueror, Al- Alexander, that um, after he'd conquered the world, one of his generals came to him and said, Alexander, one of my, my oldest daughters is about to get married, and I'd really like to throw her a great wedding, but I need, to, I need to, some money. I've served you faithfully for 30 or 40 years now. Could you, could you give me some money so I could throw a wedding? And Alexander said, you all right? You have served me faithfully? Yes, I will give you the money. Just tell my treasurer. The man goes to Alexander's treasurer and proceeds to request the largest sum of money for any kind of wedding, larger than anything Alexander, any party Alexander's ever thrown. In our day, millions upon millions of dollars. So the treasurer goes to Alexander and says, ah, you know, this guy's saying that you authorized this, but I don't think you understood how much money he was going to ask for. He had asked for hundreds of millions of dollars. Alexander thought for a minute and he, he smiled and he says, give it to him. And the treasurer said, why? He said, he's trying to take advantage of you. He said, no, my general pays me two compliments. He said, number one, he thinks that I'm wealthy enough that I can afford this. Number two, he thinks I'm generous enough that I'd actually give it to him, and that honors me. Newton says, when you come to God, do not insult God or the limits of his generosity by asking small things or dreaming small dreams. Is what this church dreaming of worth the price that he paid? Does it do justice to the God of Gethsemane? Do not insult his sacrifice through small dreams and weak expectations. That's not what he died for. He didn't die so we could have a comfortable little fellowship that makes little to no impact in the community and barely survives. He died to make the nations worship. He died to create a multitude that would gather around his throne so large that no man could number. And our visions for our community and our world ought to reflect that. Your vision for your life ought to reflect that. Is what you're living for worth him dying for? Is what you're living for worth him dying for? What are you doing in your life? How are you spending your retirement? Is it worth the price that he paid? The God who says go is the Savior of Gethsemane. He said all authority is given to me. Is there anything that God will not give for the sake of Jesus? I remember one time praying for um, a group of people that our church was interested in, much like you're praying for the, the, the Wadi people. I was praying for this group, and there was a Christian who had been martyred there. And the story was very touching. And I remember getting on my knees to pray for this group of people, and I said, God, this person shed their blood. God, they paid the price. On their behalf, would you give awakening and salvation to this group? And it was one of those moments where, the Holy Spirit didn't speak audibly. It was probably a few degrees louder than audibly. You might know what I'm talking about. It was as if the Holy Spirit said this to me. I understand what you're asking. But there is someone who has already shed his blood for this group. And there is nothing else that needs to be done that would turn my heart toward this group. He will see, Isaiah 53.10, the suffering of his soul and be satisfied. Do you understand how satisfied God is 
in the sacrifice of Jesus. And do you understand that there is no limit to what you and I can ask in his name? So Psalm 2.8 says, ask of me, ask, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Because he satisfied God. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the, of the age. The one who makes the statement that he will go with us is the Savior who went through Gethsemane. Is there anything not worth giving up for him? Is there anywhere that we would not go to possess and to please him? The Savior who sends us is the Savior who says he goes with us. Do you realize the possibility when that Savior begins to possess you and begins to send you? Can I tell you what I've dreamed for the city of Raleigh-Durham, where God has planted me and where I hope to die? I mean, I can't guarantee I'll wake up tomorrow morning, but I've asked God to let me serve my whole life there. I've told my church I want to preach my own funeral sermon from my own pulpit, crawl into the casket, shut the lid, say hi to Jesus. That's all I want to go out, all right? So let me tell you what I've asked for Raleigh-Durham in the time that God has given me. I've asked him to let us plant 1,000 churches out of our church. I've asked him to let us send out 5,000 people from our church on a permanent basis, both overseas for missions and also for domestic church planning. I've asked God to let me minister in Raleigh-Durham faithfully for 40 years. I've asked him to let us baptize during that time 50,000 people either in our church or churches we planted in Raleigh-Durham. I've asked him to let us sponsor or begin, start 100 community blessing organizations to minister to the homeless, the orphan, the prisoner, the unwed mother, and the high school dropout in Raleigh-Durham. I've asked him to let us be a part of an awakening that would take place in Raleigh-Durham that would change the entire state of North Carolina for 100 years. You might call that audacious. I call it faithfulness to the Christ of Gethsemane. I'm not, listen, I'm not going to let him walk by Raleigh-Durham. I'm going to be like that woman that goes up and grabs the hem of his garment. Jesus, by the way, that miracle is headed somewhere else which means he has no intention of stopping to heal this woman. But she grabs hold of him and says, you can't go. And that's what I want to do for Raleigh-Durham and say, you can't go. I know you're headed somewhere else, but you're going to do it here. I think of the woman who came to Jesus, the Syrophoenician woman with the daughter that was sick and dying. And, you know, it's one of the strangest conversations Jesus had because she comes up and says, will you heal my daughter? And Jesus, remember what she said to her? Woman, it is not right to take the bread intended for children and give it to dogs. And all the disciples were like, oh, snap, he just called her a dog, right? By the way, I've read commentators who were like, well, what he meant there was little puppy. Like, I don't care what, how, it's still a dog, right? And that's not, you know, that's not culturally appropriate in any culture. But see, the woman is undaunted because she knows that dog is not a racial slur. Dog is a statement of her worthiness. And she says, yes, sir, but in a rich man's house, even the little dogs get to eat the crumbs that falls off the master's table. In other words, listen, there is so much grace flowing off your table that even a little unworthy dog like me, there's plenty for me. And Jesus said, I haven't seen faith like that anywhere in Israel, and he heals her daughter. You see, I want to go up to Jesus and say, I'm not saying that Raleigh Durham is worthy. I'm certainly not saying I'm the kind of leader and pastor that can lead it. I'm just saying there's so much grace that flows out of Gethsemane that I can just ask for it and ask for you to release it to me. And I believe you'll give it because I believe you're good because this is what you showed me in the Garden of Gethsemane. John Piper preached at our church. I don't know if you know who that is. He's a Christian leader. Um, John Piper, 
um, preached this. He, he talked about how over the world in the last days, regardless of really how you think about you know, the end times, he said there's going to be this, this cloud of unbelief that covers the entire earth that what Jesus will end up shattering through. He said, but the things for the church get worse in the last days, not better. He said, so we know that's going to come. He said, but there is no reason why there will not be exceptions. And he says, it might be that the faith of the Summit Church bores a hole through this glacier of unbelief and allows a portal through which the glory of God shines down on that church and that city. And I said, God, may it be so for this city and every city that we're going to bless around the world. Maybe it's going to be a dark cloud of unbelief, but I believe that our faith grabbing hold of the hem of Jesus' garment, believing in the God of Gethsemane, is not going to let him pass by, and we're going to see his glory pour into these places. That's why we're there. See? That's why you're there in the family that you're in. That's why you're there in the school you're in, the workplace you're in. That's why God has led your church to the nations that it's to be involved with. The saddest verse in the Bible to me is Matthew 13, 58. Jesus did not, many mighty works, did he not, in the city of Nazareth because of their unbelief. If there was anywhere Jesus had a soft spot for, it would have been Nazareth, right? And that's where he was from. He grew up with the kids, went to school with the kids that were there. But he didn't do a single thing there, not because he wasn't willing, but because of their unbelief. And I want to say, God, let it not be so in Raleigh, Durham. Let there be people who believe and release your power into this area. As I get ready to close this, let me show you a verse that really has kind of arrested my heart this year. It's going to be confusing at first, so hang on. Amos chapter 5. You ever read the book of Amos? You should, because one day in heaven you're going to meet Amos. He's going to be like, hey, did you read my book? And it's going to be embarrassing if you didn't. So Amos chapter 5, verse 4. Thus says the Lord to the house of Israel, do not seek Bethel. Do not enter until Gilgal. Do not cross over to Beersheba. Seek the Lord now and live. Why the random list of cities? Bethel, Bethel is how the Hebrew people pronounce it, is where Jacob had his life-changing encounter with God. That was the place that Israelites thought of heaven meeting earth because that's where heaven invaded in this ladder Gilgal was where the children of Israel finally emerged, if you go back and read it, where they finally emerged from the 40 years of unbelief. They crossed the Jordan River, and God, it says, wiped away their reproach, and they built the monument. That was Gilgal, another place where God moved in Israel and brought them into victory. Beersheba was where God delivered Abraham by giving him a treaty with Abimelech, and that treaty became the gateway through which they got the entire promised land. And that was a big deal to them. So Gilgal, Beersheba, and Bethel each of these places represents a time when heaven revealed itself on earth. Israel had fallen into the trap of recounting God's mighty movements in the past and not seeking him in the present. And it wearied God. And it angered him. And he said, I am not a God of the past. I am a God of the present. And the things I did in the past were an invitation for you to believe me in the present. You see, I believe he might say to us, don't seek me at Pentecost. Don't seek me in the pages of the book of Acts. Do not seek me in the Reformation. Don't seek me in the modern missionary movement. Seek me now and live. See, I sometimes wonder if we weary God 
through our constant recounting of the stories of John Wesley and George Whitfield and William Carey and Hudson Taylor and Martin Luther, because in telling them over and over again, we imply that the great movements of God are something in the past, but his name is not I was, his name is I am. And he says, seek me now and live. William Carey launched the modern mission movement on this statement. You may have heard it before. Expect great things of God and then attempt great things for God. The great attempts come from the great expectations. The great expectations come from what you learn about God in the past that leads you to believe what he will do in the present. The great expectations come from the garden of Gethsemane. So you want a vision for your life? Look to him. See him pray. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love or sorrow meet or joy compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine? That were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. You need motivation to pray for somebody? Why don't you look to the Savior in Gethsemane? You have trouble hurting for lost people? Why don't you look to him? Look to him. Gaze at him and never look away. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. Paul's prayer for the Ephesian church, my prayer for my church, my prayer for you, Vance's prayer for you, our prayer for ourselves is that God might open our eyes to see how wide, how high, how deep, how long is the love of God that is given to us in Christ Jesus. Because the love of Christ compels us. And once you are possessed by the love of God, you don't need a missions conference, you don't need a tithing series, you become a generous person who goes and sins and won't shut up because you see the world through the lens of Gethsemane. Gethsemane. 